this is something that I think we don't talk about enough. The super sick patients are sometimes ultra easy. And the super not sick patients are ultra easy. The hardest patients are the ones in between. We don't have enough time for them to declare themselves one way or the other. And that's what the ED is going to do is they're going to sit on them and they're going to wait. They're going to tap their feet and they're going to come back and check. And they're going to look and they'll be like, yeah, I guess they're probably fine then. I was climbing super hard things that you would think would make me super psyched, but I would just like kind of like sad. Well, you're basically finding your human limit, right? Yeah. The limit of Jace. Yeah. Turns out that, I don't know, you can like optimize for a lot of things. I was optimizing for maximum climbing performance. A lot of other things suffered. Whereas I've been trying to find the balance a lot more of optimizing for happiness. And big wall climbing is huge for that. It's super scary or it's not. It's this ultra binary of you're either having the best time ever or you're completely gripped. Those are your two options. Mm -hmm. There's no like, oh, this is okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't exist on 1500 feet up El Capitan. You have to get really good at being like, I'm scared right now. I don't like this. How, what do I have to do in my brain to make this fun? Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke, and I'm happy to present this episode to you. It was recorded in July of 2021 in my living room. Fellow paramedic Jay Smullen and I first interacted on Twitter, and this was our first spoken conversation ever. I wanted to talk to him about all things medicine and his passion for rock climbing, particularly what he's learned from it and how it's helped him on the job. And we ended up talking about a wide range of things. He taught me about the principle of charity in debates, how code switching is essential in EMS, what still scares him on the job, how he decided to transition out of urban 911 care to critical care, and what it was like to get COVID during the first months of the pandemic. You can find show notes about things we discuss and pictures from the interview at medicmindset.com. Here's Jace. So we're drinking our coffee. Mm -hmm. Jace Mullen is here with me. This interview is kind of interesting because I started thinking about what do I know about him? And what I know is what you believe because I read your tweets. Your tweets are usually of substance. You're not just retweeting a bunch of people. Usually you tweet yourself. The like retweet with just like blasting something has a place. But I think a lot of times Twitter's already such a small platform. You're getting such a little nugget that you can just add on another little nugget. Right. And make something more valuable. I've been trying to do that more. Why am I retweeting this? And just put a couple of words or something. Yeah, it doesn't have, even have to be that much. You can be like, I like this. And like, you're like, oh, cool, sweet. This is right. This is right. Yeah. And sometimes it's, let's refine this idea a little bit, make it a little more, give it something that's really actionable. Sam Gollier tweeted this thing that was awesome. It was like the way that you calculate French from millimeters or whatever it was. I think you divide by three and then it had nothing useful in it. Cool. Like, that's a fun bar fact. Mm -hmm. But how do we actually use that as something useful? How do you make your find out what the biggest suction catheter you can use in ET tube. Just little stuff like that where you're like, yeah, cool fact. Let's like make it actionable. Or a lot of times taking stuff from the emergency medicine, critical care side and bringing it over into the EMS side mm -hmm. and doing that little bit of translation. Here's your Twitter bio. Here's some of the things I plucked out of it. Oh, oh good. Philosophy major turned paramedic. Do you have a degree in philosophy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was never like, I'm going to get a philosophy degree and I'm going to be a philosopher. That was never the goal. I think it just gives you a really good set of tools to like evaluate day-to-day -day life. Like a philosophy degree, at the end of the day, is a degree in how to think 
and how to evaluate and form arguments in like a holistic way, not in like a, I want to win the argument way, but in let's find what the truth is here. And there's that whole thing about charitability and arguments and responding to the best version of someone's argument, whether or not that's what they put out. Oh, charitability. What did you say? Charitability. Charitability in in an argument. Yeah. And responding when somebody tells you something to pick out the best part of what they say and build on that. If you're arguing with someone, I mean, not, let's not say arguing. Let's say, yeah, having a discussion. Uh-huh. They make an argument. You're not responding to their argument, but you kind of have to respond to whatever the best version of that argument you can come up with is. So if you're like, I would have argued that point this way, you need to respond to that. Oh. Whatever their point of view is, you're engaging with the idea in its best form versus how they argue that idea. Okay, that is really useful because what you're saying, this is useful to the everyday paramedic, I think, and for me, just navigating the world. I think I hear you saying, listen to the content, not the manner in which they expressed it. Totally. You see this on Facebook all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm on Twitter and I do not engage in EMS Facebook Mm -hmm. because of this stuff. Someone like makes an argument. Okay, the argument was poorly written because it's Facebook, but the idea is actually good Mm -hmm. and they're getting torn apart because they didn't argue it well. Right. Because there was a hole in the argument, which is not engaging with the idea at all, but it's in how they express the idea. Yeah. We're not getting anywhere with this. Right. Yes, you feel smarter now because you push someone else down. Mm -hmm. We're not getting it how to do this thing better or whatever. So you're not on Facebook? I'm on Facebook. See the Facebook EMS stuff. Yeah. But I don't really engage ever. I make a point to not engage in the comment threads. And I learned that really early on. And I can't imagine how much time I've saved because of that. It's a rule because sometimes I want to. Yeah. And then I'm like, do I have an hour? Nope. No. Don't have an hour. You were a street medic and now you are a... Sounds like flight medic. Yeah. I just started flying. Brand new baby flight medic. All right. A lot of listeners of Medic Mindset are new paramedics, and you're kind of a new paramedic all over again, Oh, presumably. Oh, yeah. I am in such a different world now. Mm-hmm. Being a paramedic, at least in my world, which was inner city 911 paramedic, 10-minute mm-hmm. medicine, we didn't have anything even resembling critical care. No IV pumps. We had basically a life pack and a bunch of IV catheters and a box full of meds, and off you went. So it's the interesting translation of there's nothing in paramedic school that trains you for critical care. There's nothing in 911 medicine that trains you for critical care. And then all of a sudden, day, I don't know, I think I was like within my first couple of weeks and I'm like walking into an ICU room to a prone to patient on eight drips, continuous paralysis. They're on three pressers. They're on 20 of peep and trying to figure out how to go from paramedic brain to crit care ICU nurse brain yeah. is... A big translation, but a lot of the things do come over in weird ways that you would never expect. Mm, give me an example. I mean, we get really good at sick, not sick. We get really good at making decisions in the gray. We can talk about like the OODA loop things. What is it? Observe or orient, observe, decide, act or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it <clears throat> orient or observe first? I would say I, observe. I think it's observe. Okay, take it in. Yeah, take it in. What Figure out does where this you mean? Are in the yeah. system. And then make a decision. Yeah, and then act. And then act, and then come back around and do it again. Exactly. <laughs> and the like beautiful thing about the OODA loop that only clicked recently was that the big part of it is you need the action 
is necessary in order to like disturb the system in order to get into the cycle again. Very well. And that's like super hard to do. But one of the skill sets that paramedics have, I'm going to do something and I'm going to see what happens. Yes. It might be the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to start going down the CHF treatment. And as soon as nitro is not working, we're going to go and be like, oh, that was COPD. We're going to start swapping into that treatment. We do that all the time. But you would never have gotten to the right point if you hadn't failed in the first thing. And you can't get there just staring at the patient, hoping something's going to happen. <laughs> you have to do something. Treatments can have diagnostic results, but that is not the intention, right? We're not just tinkering willy-nilly and just throwing stuff. We have a reason we're starting that care plan. And then the added benefit is we get to see how they respond to that. Totally. And I remember as a new paramedic, that was super scary to me. I'm going to start doing the wrong treatment. And then I'll figure it out. And then I'm going to have to go to the ER and explain why this obvious COPD patient got 4 or 8 of nitro. Or sorry, 0.4 or 0.8. And then you like talk to the ER docs. I was lucky enough to work in a place with a whole lot of residents I knew really well. And they're like, yeah, that's just how it goes. Of course, like that's not a big deal at all. That's how emergency medicine works. That's how emergency medicine works. Totally. You're making decisions as you're collecting data. Totally. ICU medicine very different. I remember we were taking like a sick hyperkalemic out early on, like maybe my second or third call. I would forget that we have labs. I still do this. And I'm so used to like, I don't have labs. What I have is an EKG. I can get a 12 lead on anyone and be like, oh, they have peak teeth. This is obviously a hyperkalemic EKG. Let's start treating for hyperkalemia. I was like, oh, we need an EKG. We need bicarb. We need calcium. And my partner was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we don't need to do that. I think it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I remember him going, getting the box of calcium out and setting it down. He's like, if anything changes, it'll be right here. Does that make you feel better? Yeah. Yeah, that, that does. <laughs> I, I'm nervous still because this is yeah. this patient, if it was a 911 call, mm. would have gotten the works. Right, because you're not sure how they're going to trend. Whereas in the ICU, they've been watching and they know which which direction and how fast things are moving. The EKG I was looking at was probably five hours old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she'd been fine. They haven't had to do anything. Yeah. Uh, whereas in EMS, you get the sick patient who you're pulling out of a house and you get the EKG and you're like, ugh, doing all the things. And then you get there and they're better for now. Yeah. Um, but that's not how pulling patients out of an ICU works. So you can really switch the mindset. It's hard for me still to like keep the paramedic brain on and be like, oh, wait, what have they missed? I need to assess and differentiate still, but in this different way. Where I work, we do some ground transfers, we do rotor wing, and then we also do fixed wing. When you're fixed wing, you can be with your patient for three or four hours pretty easily, and things will change a lot. The story that they got from the sending nurse will be completely different than when we show up. Hey, so by the way, they're innovated now. Oh. Like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's tough on your yeah. mental preparation yeah. for a switch like that. It's been a really, really good challenge medically and trying to figure out how to keep the paramedics all alive doing a lot of ICU-type calls. Mm-hmm. We still do scene calls and all that, and then it, it feels fun. Yeah. Things go Like an smooth. old friend? Oh, yeah. <laughs> how did you decide to get into flight or do critical care medicine? Uh, so I used to work at Denver Health um, as a paramedic. I was at the point where I was still happy and I still liked the place, and I think that's a good time to get out. I was seeing a lot of people that I really loved and respected either quit super ultra burnt out or mm-hmm. fired for nonsense that I don't think would have happened had they not been super burnt out. Mm-hmm. 
And that was kind of hard to watch that happen. Anyone who like follows my Twitter knows that I'm really interested in medicine. And I was reaching a point where obviously there was still a ton more to learn as a 911 medic, but I was also kind of wanting more of a clinical challenge. I remember that I was proud of having done, given every med in my formulary, except for Sionicate, which I came really close to giving, but they sent, um, in the city we had uh, Sionicate because it's expensive and expires and we don't use it. It was on the lieutenant vehicles instead of on every ambulance because mm-hmm. that is reasonable. There were two fires in the city that day at the same time, and we called and we're like, we need lieutenant with Sionicate. Normally we get lieutenants on all fires for mm-hmm. that reason. And because there's potential for a lot of patients and the fire department likes having it. Um, and it gives us some more flexibility. But the dispatcher had sent the lieutenant to the wrong fire. And we could have used it. I was super psyched. And then... Yeah, um, you were going to use it? Yeah, he actually met us at the hospital with it because we can get oh. it a lot quicker than hospital pharmacy. Mm-hmm. So we walked in and gave it to the docs to hang. I was like, ah. Oh. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. I had done all of my meds and then I had done all of my procedures. There's still more learning here, but... A lot more on the margins. Yes. Instead of like... The law of diminishing returns. Yeah. I was interested in more of the high-level critical care medicine. Um, When you say high-level, do you mean more complex care, more cognitive stuff for you? Yeah. More cognitive challenges for you? Yeah. I think probably just more... I don't know that it's necessarily harder. I think in a lot of ways, 911 medicine is harder. Mm -hmm. It's different and it fires different parts of the brain. Yeah. In order to like be in that world, you have to learn a lot more about a lot of things. Knowing lab values and stuff is right. not super useful as a mm-hmm. street medic. You should probably know, like, have a vague idea mm-hmm. of what a pH is. Um, Don't say that. No, I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, although I think that's probably where I was for a lot of my yeah. Well, you career. can yeah. do the job with yeah. a vague idea totally. about pH. And I think a lot of, I was there for. I mean, like, I could probably talk about respiratory acidosities and stuff sort of hand wavy and having to learn it and have it be a huge part of your day is super interesting it's just so much more going on with all these patients because it's they were super sick now they're still super sick but we know exactly like the 18 ways that they're super sick Um, so do you think it's more you've added on academic if we want to call it that or i think more academic is maybe a good way of describing it I wanted to ask you, has it, is it easier from the psychosocial standpoint of dealing with or addressing family and emotional needs? Or do those critical care patients, do, are you still having to have those type of like hard conversations or anxious patients and things like that? Honestly, I don't know, probably three quarters of my patients are on a ventilator. I was just talking about my, this with my partner the other day. When I do get a patient I can talk to, I get so excited because that was like a huge part of my day is like... You're running 10 or 12 calls a day and you're having a conversation with all your patients. A lot of them, like, that's the biggest therapy you're going to be giving is what did you talk about? Or do you sit in the back in the captain's chair and just type away? And that definitely varies day to day, whether you're tired and you got stuff going on at home and it's going to be really quiet on your transports. Right. Or did you just have your third cup of coffee and you're feeling good and... (laughs) Everyone's super interesting all of a sudden. <laughs> just, you know, like having your conversation. Um, they just get these like really quick little snapshots into everyone's life. And you got to do the thing where you go to like $5 million or retired physician's house, talk about his syncope. The next call is going to be in a homeless camp with mm-hmm. 40 people staring at you as you work an overdose. 
and it takes a special person to do that yeah and it takes a lot to be who your who the retired physician who's having a syncopal who he needs as his paramedic yep is a very different paramedic than who the person having an overdose in the park needs yes and it's not that you're a chameleon it's that you're just aware of which parts of yourself to turn off and totally. dial. Yeah. Um, it's definitely big on code or I code switch a lot. Code switching. Um, it's something I recognize and I still haven't figured out if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. Um, I do it a lot. I don't think it's bad. I, I don't know. I think it's, well, you tell me what you think and then I'll tell no, you. I don't know. My little brother doesn't do it at all. No matter where he is mm-hmm. in what environment, it is the exact same jack. There is no ver- no variety. Sometimes you're like, that's super cool. And sometimes like, dude, this is not appropriate right now. <laughs> this behavior, like you need to like chill out just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it never change. I think that's social intelligence to be able to dial it a little. Yeah. Part of it feels a little inauthentic. I guess if you take a step back, doing it can be part of the authenticity. Yeah, in the microcosm of like, or the like small scale of like, I was acting like this with this patient. And I was acting like this with this patient. That feels inauthentic because obviously one of those, probably realistically neither of those is real. If you take the setback, look at the 40 patients you run this week, and then just average all of that out, that makes it up. I want to go back. I'm trying to remember what exactly you said. You said, it's not real. Uh, yeah. Let's say I'm a, my personality maybe has like 20 slides in a slide deck or yeah. something. For this person, I just know, like, oh, pull out this, these pieces of my personality. Yeah. It's still real. Yeah. I think it's a good skill to have. Like, I've talked about this before, that, like, how I describe what's going on to my patient is very different than how I'll say it to the physician or the receiving staff. I had a paramedic student, um, which is, like, a great way to highlight, like, all the things you're doing wrong in life is, like, have a paramedic <laughs> student. You will watch them copy what you do, but, like, just a little bit off. <laughs> Um, like, they don't get the, like, why. They see you doing things, and so they start doing it, but they don't fully understand the why. But I had a patient. He was in heroin withdrawal, I think. I was like, hey, man, like, how long have you been dope sick for? He was like, oh, you get it. And then was super open and said, like, sir, when was the last time you used heroin? Like, they're like, screw you. Like, no, I'm not answering that question. But you're like, hey, man, like, well, how long have you been dope sick for? That's part of, like, the code switching, right? I would not ask someone who wasn't puking on the street um, and told me that they were dope sick how long they've been dope sick for that's how he presented to me so that's how i kept it rolling Mm -hmm. we had a really good conversation i think we talked about we kind of had like the harm reduction conversation about you have clean needles you have partners you have narcan the works and i think part of that was meeting him on his level and not being the paramedic asking when the last time he used heroin but when he told me he was dope sick i said how long you've been dope sick for kind of like me on that level and have a more authentic conversation about what the resources are like, I get it. I'm not judging you at all. I'm on your level and like having that conversation. But it was really funny because at the receiving hospital, when my paramedic student started giving a report, he wasn't talking about heroin withdrawal. He's like, yeah, so this dude's dope sick. <laughs> I was like, oh God. Oh no. That is a perfect yeah. example. Yeah. I was like, no, you got to switch back, man. Like I get it. Like, yeah, I was having a conversation about being dope sick. Now we're at the hospital with the physician who like, <laughs> probably maybe knows what that is has spent his entire life in a classroom he's in a heroin withdrawal he last used heroin three days ago or whatever perfect um, example yeah, yeah and i was like oh no yeah. have you ever read any goffman 
um he's like the backstage uh i think he was a psychologist i haven't read him since like freshman year oh there's gottman oh yeah who does tons of marriage research yeah um maybe different (laughs) Um, i don't know he has this like performative nature of self and like the front stage backstage oh yeah totally that's that's sociology cortex Yeah, yeah he argues that you're always performing yeah maybe not when you're alone whenever it's a social exchange yeah you're always giving a version of yourself totally so i know you're a climber again i know this from twitter (laughs) (laughs) and your shirt right now yeah and i saw a tweet you showed a picture of what looked like four climbers and all their ropes kind of together and you said you're now that you're in critical care medicine you're starting to Notice that climbing is like taking care of critical care patients. Was that just about the ropes? Yeah. So it was like a specific discipline of climbing is big wall climbing. The biggest things in that you can climb. So like El Capitania, Yosemite is like kind of the huge example of that. It's just a very specific ultra technical discipline of climbing that is not strength based. The only climbing that you're not using your hands on rock, you're like figuring out all these little solutions using equipment to like get you up, basically like clip. The way climbing gear works for trad climbing, which is kind of my discipline, is you have... Wait, what is yours? Trad climbing is traditional climbing. Oh, um, traditional. Got yeah. it. Um, you got so a code switch for the yeah, non-climber yeah, I'm over sorry. here. So a quick climbing synopsis. There's sport climbing where there's bolts in the wall. Uh, so you're climbing features on the rock and you're able to clip those to keep yourself from dying. Trad climbing, you're kind of climbing what isn't there. You're climbing the void in between the rocks. So if there's like cracks and stuff... You can climb those because they're the like lines of weaknesses. And then your gear goes into the cracks in a way that is removable but won't pull out if you fall. Aid climbing is kind of the, the next step of that where you take the gear and you're not climbing with your hands and feet. You're climbing with your gear. You're basically clipping little ladders to your gear and putting them up so you're moving like five to six feet at a time. It's super tedious. Basically like vertical freight hauling. So you get to the top of, you basically run out of rope, build an anchor or there is an anchor basically like haul all of your gear up to you mm-hmm. um so you have multiple rope systems you have all of this stuff going on that's what um, i saw in the picture yeah that's like super complicated it's like a mess of ropes yeah. and gear and everything is in a mess of tangle and if you unclip the wrong thing you die and there's a lot of that with icu medicine you walk into a patient who's on ecmo and a balloon pump and a transvenous pacer and all of the drips ever and you have to somehow move the patient i don't know two hours away without pulling on a single thing but you need to have everything accessible you need to know how it's going because the patient's going to get sick and inevitably at the ambulance as soon as you leave the ambulance bay things are going to start going really sideways (laughs) um (laughs) and it's just like there's so much stuff going on and you're just moving things slowly you're also trying to be quick that's sort of what we what we sell half the time is speed, yeah. even with like the crazy complex patients. So I don't know. It's sort of a weird mental place to be in. Of all of this stuff is really important. It's going to be really easy to tangle and pull, and I need to somehow move it all over to my stuff. I think a lot of people in emergency medicine, a lot of our students, seems like they rock climb. I wanted to ask you how it fits into your life now, if it's a stress relief. Or it's because it's so cognitively challenging or similar to work, if it is kind of work, or if it's different enough that you can relax into it? Yeah. I've honestly, rock climbing has become so much, I've just done it way less. And I remember this happened when I started as a new medic in Denver, 
where I was just so gripped all the time and work was so stressful that climbing felt like an additional stressor. I did not have the added bandwidth to like go get scared. Oh, I was yeah. already like spending 40 hours a week mostly scared. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. And it like I would try and go climbing and I just not enjoy it. I'm feeling some of the like similar things again where I'm, I just don't have the bandwidth to go climbing. But I bought a mountain bike. It feels physically harder. Climbing is this awesome physical challenge where you need to be ultra fit in order to do really well. You don't have to be fit to go rock climbing. That's what I'm saying. But to climb at the highest levels, you have to be ultra fit. How well you do at rock climbing is a direct relation to how fit you are. Mm-hmm. But rock climbing itself is not necessarily like a workout. It uses tiny muscles in your forearms <laughs> that are really easy to make tired yeah. because they're tiny. Maybe a little bit of back muscle and some core versus I go ride my bike and like my legs are on fire the entire time. And that feels better for my brain for some reason. Mm-hmm. Well, people talk about that type of exercise I want to put it in quotations because they talk about it burning up the stress hormones. Yeah. Like you metabolize them. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for just going and working hard for a couple hours, grinding up a hill. I think there's something to be said for doing it kind of mindlessly is what totally. seems like would be therapy. Yeah. And that's why I was wondering if the rock climbing is just more cognitive strain. Rock climbing is a ton of cognitive strain. When I was at my, in my best shape climbing wise and climbing the hardest things, I was probably the least happy. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know, climbing gets you to like this super dark place. You're just like trying so hard and failing over and over again. You eventually succeed, but I don't know. Like, I think I maybe gave myself an eating disorder there for a little bit because I yeah. was like trying to get lighter. Sure. And getting injured a lot. I was climbing super hard things that you would think would like make me super psyched, but I was just like kind of like sad. Mm-hmm. Well, you're basically finding your human limit, right? Yeah. The limit of Jace. Yeah. And like, it turns out that, I don't know, you can like optimize for a lot of things. I was optimizing for maximum climbing performance. A lot of other things suffered. Whereas I've been trying to find the balance a lot more of optimizing for happiness. Yeah. Not just one performance in one sport. I think I also early on as a paramedic did that where I was optimizing my life was like how to be the best paramedic. I'm going to work 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. In my off time, I'm going to be reading literature and doing all of that. Didn't have time for the rest of me. I got okay at being a paramedic. A lot of stuff suffered as a result. And now I'm kind of like, I ride my bike and I climb and I am a paramedic when I'm a paramedic. It's not all encompassing and I'm way happier. I am similar with my hobbies. I turn them into jobs and then they're no longer fun. Scuba diving is an example that quickly I was like, what's the next technical thing? Where do I want to go to do this? Penetrating into this dive. Do you ever do like cave diving? I've mostly done wrecks. Okay. That seems so but scary, I've, man. I've looked at a lot of videos. Sounds of so scary. So I look at those cave videos and I want to know what's the limit of ginger. Like, could I do that? I want to know that I can do that. Yeah. But then like finding that limit is so sketchy. <laughs> like there's no room for error like you've come up at least like climbing like you're like oh yeah i fell there and like it's fine whatever you could fall a long ways yeah but you have a rope things are okay could mess up that technical stuff is so on autopilot by the time you're in the scary sounds like a man who's on a death wish (laughs) (laughs) no it like it is like (laughs) placing gear that's solid sometimes you do go up in the alpine and things are sketchy and then you climb easier things um or at least i do because i don't want to die Scuba diving, you're, you're correct that it's kind of incompatible with life if anything goes wrong. There's yeah. no chance. Yeah, it's like base jumping. Like, yeah. I feel like base jumping and like 
technical cave diving are like very similar. Mm-hmm. You're relying on gear. And if the gear has anything that happens, even yeah. if everything else is perfect, you're screwed. That's right. It's life support. Yeah. Whereas climbing, like, yeah, you're relying on gear. But if everything goes perfect, you don't fall. You still have that, I don't know, breaker of, oh, yeah, the gear may be imperfect, but like we're not going to test it, ideally. Oh. Yeah, right? So like you have more control over, you're not 100% relying on gear. Right. The gear is the backup. Yeah. It's not the way that you're living right now. You have more control. Yeah. And like, I don't know, there's probably an ego thing there of like, well, I'm not going to fall. I don't need to test gear. I don't know. I think at a certain point, like that's sort of how it works. Like the gear is the backup for your performance mm-hmm. instead of the way that you're surviving right now. I see the difference now. But I don't know that that's better. But scuba diving is really easy. You're just swimming and yeah. breathing. Yeah. You're that's not even it. swimming. You're just kicking. Yeah. Barely. Yeah. Barely. Yeah. Slow baby bit. <laughs> <laughs> kicking your way into a cave of death. Next thing you know, I haven't gone into those caves. I just, I I literally, you should see my Instagram. I subscribe to all these. It seems like a lot of women do it and they're doing these like two tanks on either side. And there you go. Next thing you know, you're like, someone's trying to ketamine you to get you out of a cave, putting you in a (laughs) torpedo that Elon Musk made. (laughs) Back to, this is what I do with my hobbies. I have to purposely make sure I don't turn them into more. Like something's got to be easy, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, wait, does it? Oh, I think. I think easy feels good. Maybe not. I don't know. The obstacle is the way, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have to rest. Yeah, I agree. I'm bad at that. The word recreation means to recreate yourself, but it doesn't actually mean rest. No. No. You're just, you're making me want to turn all my hobbies into jobs. No, that's not what I'm saying. They don't have to be jobs. It could be hard and not be a job. Yeah. It could just be the thing you do for fun. Because it it's hard sometimes. and fun. Yeah. 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 Do you know like the different like fun scales? Like type okay, one, type two, type three? let's talk about fun. I would love for you to educate me about fun because I have often said I don't really understand joy and fun. Ooh. I don't understand it. What do you, I, like I know joy. Like yeah. I have a child. Yeah. When, when he does amazing things, I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. Or when, like, when you text me, I see your name pop up. I'm like, awesome, he's reaching out. Like, that feels good. But fun? Like, I don't know. This is fun. Yeah. I don't think that fun and joy need to be together. Okay, so there's... Help me. Yeah, so the fun scale. I don't know. Someone came up with this. It's, like, been in the outdoor world since I was in the outdoor world. So most of my life. So it breaks down to, like, three types of fun. You have type one, type two, and type three fun. I've never heard this. You've never heard this. This is Okay, this is going to be awesome. This is just the education yeah. I need. Yeah, so type one fun is the thing that's fun to do while you're doing it, and it's fun after. So like, I don't know, like that's like, I call it like roller coaster fun. Mm-hmm. It's just fun, pure fun. Pleasure. Yeah, it's pleasure. It can be, it can be a lot of things. It might be like dancing or whatever. You have type two fun, which is it's not fun to do while you're doing it. Afterwards, you're like, yeah, that was fun. So that's like a lot of the stuff in the outdoor world. Yeah. Or you look back on it and remember it as fun. Yeah. Like while you're doing, you're like, oh, this sucks. And then afterwards, you're like, "Eh, yeah, we'll do it again next weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of like mountaineering and riding bikes up steep things. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I think the way down is probably type one fun. And then like there's type three fun, which is it's not fun to do while you're doing it. When you look back on it, you're like, no, that wasn't fun. But like. I'm going to forget about this and like next year we're going to do it. 
Um, <laughs> and like that, like it's still a type of fun that I, I have, don't know. I have an example of that yeah. for me. Do you yeah. have an example for you? Oh yeah. What's yours? We did this like really technical route up. I'm not really technical, but a uh, technical route up Mount Rainier that was just suffering the whole time and being afraid we were going to die. Mm-hmm. And I would love to go back and do that. And you remember afterwards being being like, that was terrible. If anyone knows, it's Liberty Ridge on Mount Rainier. It gets 1% of the ascents of Mount Rainier and responsible for like 25 or 50% of all the deaths. And it's just like super sketchy. Mm-hmm. And like we definitely like had the feeling of we just got by by the skin of our teeth. Mm-hmm. Like a party of six died on it two mm-hmm. weeks later. And like that just reinforced that feeling. But I don't know. I'd go back and do it. What's yours? What's your type three fun? Why would you go do it again, though? I don't know. It's a good challenge. Uh-huh. Because it's hard. Yeah. Because you want to see the limit of Jace. I like to suffer. Because. I don't know. You want to know what you're made of. I don't even know if it's that. I just like to suffer. No, that's not true. I don't think yeah. you could like, go home and have people flog you for no reason. No, no. That's not my thing. Okay, But good. some people that is. I know. <laughs> Uh, let it know. Medic mindset does not kink shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm cutting that out. Okay, I love so you. you say now. Okay, so my thing is conference speaking. Okay, hate every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, because of the anxiety leading up to it, I kind of have a little lull and mood after. Friends that know me that that little lull and mood is like deep depression. <laughs> what happens is I'll come home. And I'll tell the people that love me the most. I'm never doing that again. Don't let me. I have an offer on the table right now for 2022. Yeah. So that's like, oh, so that's far away. I can't hurt you. a year from now. Yeah. I should say yes. This sounds fun. Yeah. They can't hurt you a year from now. Uh, that's my best example. And right now on this recording, my plan is to never speak at a conference again. Okay. We'll hold you to so that. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. The nice thing about like the fun scale Mm-hmm. is that then you can be like, oh, this is whatever fun we're having right now. Yeah. But the goal at all times is to move things as far down the scale as you can. Oh, this is type three fun. What do we have to do to make this type one fun? To turn the thing, like to turn conference speaking into a type one? Yeah. Oh. While you're doing it, like it's, oh, this isn't super fun. But if we start playing some music and have a dance party while we're doing this right now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's type one fun. And big wall climbing is huge for that. One, it's not super physical. So you like have time. It's super scary or it's not. It's this ultra binary of like you're either having the best time ever or you're completely gripped. Those are your two options. Mm-hmm. There's no like, oh, this is okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't exist on 1500 feet up El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Like that's not an option. <laughs> you have to get really good at being like, I'm scared right now. I don't like this. How, what do I have to do in my brain to make this fun? Ground EMS or, or critical care medicine. Where do those two fit? I think we can all relate to the having a super a super sick patient in front of you, trying to figure out like what you need to do first, being super gripped in that scary, awful feeling. I can't work fast enough, but with the right partners or whatever magic is in the air, you run that same patient, it goes smooth in the flow state the whole time. You're not yeah. talking with your partner at all. Start to reach for something, they already hand it to you or whatever, or you're doing it the whole way, like everything works super well. That's just fun. It could be the same patient. Yeah. Depending on what's going on that day and like what your mindset is. It's either super scary and you're super gripped or it can be awesome. I worked with one of my really good partners and we had that happen a lot. And one time we had an EMT student and we had like a really super sick patient. 
it just went super smooth the entire way. And afterwards, like, hey, like, do you have any questions? Like, does that all make sense? What can we answer for you? He's like, yeah, like, I, I was with it. That all makes sense, like, medicine-wise. But do you guys normally just smile the whole time like that? <laughs> and, like, I think it was a super sick kid or something like that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you two were just smiling the whole time. Well, it was just, you know, we got it working. <laughs> we were having a good time. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Things were going smooth. They were, we were just kind of flowing through the call. And like, I guess that feels really good. It was, it was fun. I sometimes know when students have gotten in a flow state at the ER when we do rotations, when they'll suddenly say, oh my gosh, it's already been three hours. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Yep. Yep, cool. There it is. You, you were just in the present moment doing your jam. Yep. It's so much fun. It happened last night, actually. I did a clinical rotation last night and we were pretty busy. And Wait, so you, so students are on an ER rotation. We precept them there. You precept them there. Yeah, which is great for both of us because I keep learning. Mm -hmm. And then they get a very facilitated experience where I'm kind of paving the way Mm -hmm. for them to know, like, yes, we can go in this room. Yeah, my ER rotations where I just sat in the corner most of the time Mm -hmm. and was too scared to do anything. I'd see a nurse going to the IV cart. Hey, can a paramedic student do that? And they they were, they're great. They're just also in their flow state, the nurses. So they forget that we're there. What still scares you? Uh, like, what makes your hands sweat? Like, you're dreading that one. ECMO. ECMO, yeah. yeah. Um, it's just so complicated and so exhausting. You're not really doing a lot. I'm not a perfusionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a perfusionist who, like, runs all that. But the patient is super sick. We're taking ECMO by ground, so it's you're with them for a lot of hours. A lot of the like bread and butter ALS stuff feels pretty comfortable. My world is super sick patient in the ED. I can do that. Mm-hmm. It's the ICU patient that's I'm uncomfortable. Because you've been doing that for how yeah. long now? Like like six months, if that. Yeah. yeah. ICUs are scary places, man. Mm-hmm. They're very quiet. When you're nervous, do other people know it? I don't think so. I think. Sometimes on like a 911 call when I was a ground medic, probably I telegraphed a little bit more. This is something that I think we don't talk about enough. The super sick patients are sometimes ultra easy. The super not sick patients are ultra easy. The hardest patients are the ones in between mm. where like we don't have enough time for them to declare themselves one way or the other. And that's what the ED is going to do is they're going to sit on them and they're going to wait. They're going to tap their feet and they're going to come back and check. And they're going to look and they'll be like, yeah, I guess they're probably fine then. They've yeah. been here for a couple hours and nothing bad's happened yet. Mm-hmm. It probably comes back to ego, right? Like you don't want to be the paramedic that seemed to blow off a patient who ended up being super sick. Mm-hmm. You also don't want to be the paramedic that brings in the patient lights and sirens into a big room. And they're like, why? Why? I um, have an example yeah. that I want to share of um, the patient that didn't look that sick, but the medic went with her gut about, well, I'll just tell you the story. Yeah. So... Apparently, a patient was shot in the neck with an arrow, like a bow and arrow. Ouch. But it wasn't out hunting. It was in an urban homeless camp type thing. Right on. I'm impressed. When she got there, a first responder who was already at the scene said, I've cut myself shaving worse than that. Doing that whole, like, minimization of what had happened. Yeah. And she's like, ah, it's still like... He had a little small puncture... On on his neck. Yeah, it's a... And no one had found the arrow, so everybody's a little, also a little cynical about, did this really happen? Yeah, because you're like, 
not in the woods at an archery range. <laughs> right. You're not so in medieval Europe. So there's just a whole Europe. bunch of like poo-pooing this guy's story and presentation and acuity. He's saying this is the mechanism. I'm seeing penetrating trauma to the neck. This is a trauma. Like we're going to a trauma center, right? Yeah. With everybody just being like, come on. Apparently he had broken his hyoid and had some sub-Q air in there. Because I was thinking, what would I have done in that moment? I might have gone with the whole like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. fine. Also, the things to think about are like the system issues that make that harder. That's a way easier decision. Like when you're downtown and you're five minutes from the trauma center yes. and you're five minutes from the level four. Good right? point. That's a super easy decision. You're like, whatever, I'm going to go to the trauma center. Mm-hmm. That's a super hard decision when like you're talking about like, oh, we're 15 minutes from the level four critical access yep. and we're an hour from the trauma center. Yep. You're like, uh, what are we going to do? It's super easy to over triage people in the city. Because the level one trauma yeah. centers are also places that can take the most patients. They don't care that they're getting five ambulances at once. I think they it was shouldn't. fine to take them there. Yeah. What I marveled at was that she was able to say to her partner, like, no, this is a trauma alert. Yeah. Like, we're doing this. And I guess not get on the let's be cool train, yeah. you know, like yeah. cool kid. One of the dudes who taught my paramedic school, Bill Johnston, his thing was, was it was rule one was look cool. Rule two, don't kill anyone. Rule three, you can't look cool if you're not taking good care of your patients. There's no looking cool, like rolling into level four with a zone two penetrating neck trauma <laughs> that you thought was a scratch. That doesn't look cool. Um, it yeah. looks cool like walking into level one trauma center and be like, hey, yeah, this doesn't look like anything, but we're here with a trauma activation because I'm concerned about it. And then having something real come of it. Yeah. Right? That's when you're like, they're like, yeah, the paramedics did that. Are you a reader? Yeah. So I just did this series of episodes where I talk to three people about what they're reading, what they recommend. Can you be brave enough to tell me what you're reading now or what's the last thing you read? Yeah. Um, Even if it's weirdo stuff. Yeah. I'm in like three books right now. So I am interested in Stoic philosophy, which I think you are as well. I am. So I'm reading Seneca right now, his letters. And then I'm reading Wendell Berry. It's a lecture short and then like some short stories but it's called it's all turns on affection it's about conservation in the american west and then i'm reading uh what's it called and like halfway through i haven't picked it up in a couple weeks but it's uh it's in my bag right now i was gonna read on the plane uh the coddling of the american mind i like to read things that challenge my current worldview Mm -hmm. because i think it hones thinking Reading things that you disagree with, I think, is a way more fun experience than reading things that you agree with. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to be like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. You're like, <laughs> okay, cool. Like, why am I still reading? Mm-hmm. I love Atul Gawande, but Checklist Manifesto felt like that. For me, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I already agree with what you're saying. I don't know why I'm still reading this. Yeah. Whereas, like, things that like, I disagree with really dive into him. Like, oh, why? But, like, that's a good point, and it's well argued, but, like, I disagree with it. Why? How can I, like, sharpen my thinking on it? Mm. Um, and Coddling of the American Mind feels that way a little bit. Some of it, I'm like, yeah, that's a good argument. Okay, so that's what you're reading. So you said it's what I was going to read on the plane. What did you do on the plane? I slept. Yeah. Like, out? Oh, I was out the entire time. You got Sweet. that paramedic, I can sleep anywhere thing? Oh, the nurses are amazed by it. <laughs> they are used to 12-hour night shifts where, like, you do not sleep. I'm used to, like, a 10-hour shift. EMS is like, okay, so this is my pet peeve. We're going to change it right now. Everyone says... EMS earn money sleeping. We've all heard that. Mm. Do you know the better one? Um, tell me. Earn money studying. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how, a good one. It's a little frame shift right there. To become. Better. 
whatever that means. Wait, how did you get into Stoic philosophy? I listened to a podcast, the Tim Ferriss podcast. I'm not familiar. He does a lot of similar what I do here where he talks to more business-minded people about their process and habits or how they make decisions, things like that. He interviewed a guy named Ryan Holiday, who's an author that you said, you said the obstacle is the way. So, you know, Ryan Holiday. Yeah. They both live in Austin. Is he going to come on Medic Mindset? Oh my God. I would love it so much. It'd be so good. He doesn't need to though. He's already done so many interviews. You just dial him up and you can hear all his good stuff. I would like to hear their thoughts though on how it applies to EMS. Yeah. I've wondered if reading stoic philosophy would be helpful to a paramedic oh absolutely it's one of those things where like you need to be in the mindset where like you can accept it i think it can be really hard for some people Mm -hmm. the like oh so what you're telling me is my emotions don't matter and everything is fake it's like no that's not what they're saying but actually with the pandemic i started reading more i read obstacle is the way and then i just started diving into the primary literature Mm -hmm. because it's which, like, Ryan, I'm not Holiday. saying that like Ryan Holiday is without value. I think his interpretation adds a lot of value, but I think the primary source is so accessible already. It is. That's what's, what Tim Ferriss points out is really neat is that it's relatable all these years later. Yeah. Ryan Holiday infuses historical references of leaders who also have at least demonstrated some of the stoic, um, I want to say the word mindset, but I always try to avoid that word completely in this yeah. stoic approach. The stoic approach. Yeah. <laughs> and like he does a good job of the anti-example too. Mm. Of like this is someone who like probably could have done it. Start of the pandemic. Yeah. Stoicism. Like I read like a little bit of it enough to know that I was sort of interested, but not enough to really have a good idea. The pandemic hit. It's time for stoicism. Yeah. And then I read it and I was like, oh, this is the stuff my dad's been telling me my entire life. And it's super interesting because I called him out on it. I was like, Dad, have you ever read Marcus Raley's? It's like word for word. Mm. I remember getting picked up from elementary school and my dad being like, you can't control your emotions. You can only respond like how you like respond to them. If you don't like what's going on, like the only thing you control is yourself. Mm-hmm. If you don't like what's going on, like you can leave the room. You don't need to yell at people to stop. You can control yourself, not other people. All sorts of like random, like ultra stoic stuff. Dad, have you ever read this? He's like, no, I'm just telling you what my dad said. Oh. Um, and my dad's dad who i never met he was killed by a dui driver decades before i was born Mm. probably 20 years but he i guess was a book collector ultra well educated i think a pastor or something i think he read a lot of stoics sounds like it gave it to my dad who gave it to me i'm reading the stoics again and i'm like oh this is what my dad's been saying my entire (laughs) life (laughs) did it help to tell you that stuff when you were a kid i'm asking as a parent right now i'm asking for parenting advice I i think so a lot of it is, as I read the Stoics, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how I... Like, it, I'm not like, oh, I should be like that. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, sort of just how I I'll be honest, am. the Stoic stuff is not a lot of novel stuff for me. I'm like, no. But yeah. what it does is re- I go to it to recenter me when I feel a little off kilter. A lot of it, as a medic, is super helpful. Maybe not medicine, but dispatching. <laughs> <laughs> I come from a system that then we're essentially all double medic. We're all pretty experienced in the field. Yeah, there's like, oh, why is dispatch doing this? It's not like this huge clashing of gears. Now I like work with nurses who've never had to deal with that. Dispatch does something like weird and dispatchy. A lot of the times I think we forget. We don't see the bigger picture. We think we understand it because we think we understand everything. But we don't 
know what's going on. They're thinking eight steps ahead. We know that nothing's going to come of it when we like call the dispatch center and like start arguing. Nothing good comes from that. We just go to the call. We handle it. You do follow up with the conversation after you've run the call. Like, hey, what happened there? How do we make it so it doesn't happen like that again? Tell me more. Go run the call. How they tell you to get there. When they tell you to get there, do the thing and then deal with it. Right. Uh, that's super hard for a lot of the nurses who have never dealt with. This obviously doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Just get to the helicopter. Just right. Because either way, we're going. Yeah, we're going. This is happening. Yeah. yeah. I agree. It doesn't make sense. But we're just going to do it. You're kind of postponing your emotional response. Yeah. Or postponing your even any response. Yeah, it's like, like the rational response sometimes. This is obviously makes no sense. The rational answer here is not us doing this. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> We're going to go do it. We'll talk about it later. There's an episode that I did with a dispatcher. Oh, yeah. I think I listened to it. I think it's really helpful for medics to listen to. to mm-hmm. You were talking about sometimes they're making decisions about things that you don't, you don't know what all's involved. Dispatch is an abstract concept in many mm-hmm. paramedics' minds. They don't think of that they're yeah. humans. Yeah, they're <laughs> real people. A, it's just an abstract entity. Yeah, they're usually pretty cool. To get into, like, 911 dispatching, like, you've done some cool stuff in your life. And like, they have to a get really yourself hard there. job. Yeah. That's what I got from this interview. This is some hard stuff, just talking to people, not being able to use all your other senses. The name of the episode is Get on the Train. Get on the train, which goes with it. Like, get on, like, when it's about, like, get on the train with where you're going, mm-hmm. and then like sort it out. That's the only way. I, yeah, that's what he said in the yeah. episode. He was like, it's hard to control what's happening on the scene through a phone. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard uh, to so control kinda... what's happening on the scene from the scene. <laughs> Good, point. <laughs> Good point. Are you wearing a mask all the time now or not wearing a mask all the time? I'm at the point where I'm surgical mask unless they're COVID positive or, or we're doing aerosol generating procedures. And that's mm-hmm. like our guidance from our employer. And I had COVID and then I vaccinated. I had forgotten that you got COVID, but I remember seeing that on Twitter. Yeah. I was afraid you were going to die because you were pretty sick. Yeah. It I'm sucked. not being funny. No, I know. You I was, were pretty sick. Yeah. I remember, uh, what's his face? Um, one of the, ed docs uh was it not ruben strayer um rich levitan like dm'd me on twitter and it was like if your pulse ox goes below 92 you need to go to the hospital i messaged back as okay but i'm at altitude (laughs) yeah did you ever think about coming down no (laughs) i I mean because like once you get covid like how are you gonna i would have to drive somewhere sure yeah like far away yeah um i got you i just wondered if that crossed your mind because yeah i was thinking about you yeah i had friends who already steal oxygen tanks Three days of feeling really bad, fever, aches, horrible. And then, like, I felt better. If you were like, oh, like, are you sick? I was like, no. Mm-hmm. But then, like, I would do things like get shorter breath, rolling over in bed. And that was probably a bad sign. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then by day 10 of quarantine, like, I was met all the other criteria uh, to go be rejoined in the world. I would go for, like, walks down the block and I'd get shorter breath. And I had a pulse ox. I called him like little pulse ox walks to see how he's doing. Walk half a block down and like not a steep hill. And I would be like an 88 and short of breath. And I was like, oh, this is bad. Maybe that's what I saw to make me yeah. think Because I saw maybe pictures of your pulse oxes. Yeah. Because I think it was super early on. Like we didn't know anything about COVID yet. Okay. That's maybe why I was extra yeah. worried. Cause yeah. Because no one knew anything. It was early on. Like it wasn't like, oh yeah, we all have COVID. It was like people were like, wait, what is the lived experience of COVID like? Yeah. We didn't know. No one knew. So you were scared, I bet. Yeah, it was super scary. 
and it was also the point where like i didn't want to go to the hospital because like that's where they were also like we might be figuring out ventilator situations and stuff right, right. um i didn't want anyone to innovate me Mm-mm. shoot but it ended up being okay it took two or three months of biking a couple times a week and doing a lot of cardio to get back to baseline mm-hmm. of like being able to breathe dang the day i got out i went and bought my mountain bike because i was like oh, i almost died i can spend some money um <laughs> but also like i was like i know that my lungs took a huge hit i need to rehab somehow going rock climbing is not going to rehab my lungs so i would bike for five minutes and then like, tunnel vision shorter breath and then i would just sit for like 10 minutes and like it took me a while like i'm kind of ashamed to admit it because like i'm a paramedic right i should know better i was getting like wildly hypoxic i think (laughs) that's why i was like blacking out yeah you think yeah yeah yeah. um so yeah that was scary and you're probably solo oh of course (laughs) yeah because it was covid you don't go biking with friends (laughs) it was crazy slowly got better and then by a couple months i could go bike kind of stopped biking all winter and then started again this spring first bike ride was like oh i still had lung issues at the end i just didn't notice it because mm-hmm. now things feel way better you feel 100 percent now you think yeah. yeah 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 i think so every once in a while i get a weird chest pain mm-hmm. i think it's probably just my myocarditis This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. I noticed on your Twitter bio that you have your pronouns, he, him. Oh, yeah. How'd you decide to put those there? I don't know that there's like a huge thought process behind it. Um, so that, it didn't have yeah. like a personal na- story for you, like a family member or something that was uh, transgender? No, it just seemed like a really, I don't know, human thing to do. Obviously, like as a cis dude, I have a lot more, um, not power, uh, what's the word? Not Pri- even influence. Privilege, actually. Privilege, there the we word. go. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> yeah, so as a white dude, like I have a lot more privilege in that space, right? One of the things I can do, I guess, is use that privilege of not an affront to me to put my pronouns in. Like, it doesn't, like, it's not a hard thing for me to do, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, some people, it's a super hard thing to do. If you normalize it, if everyone's doing it, then it makes it easier for the people who it's hard for, I think. Yeah, that's my thought as well. 